Good evening, everyone. What a delight it is to be gathered again in the Lord's house, to be able to set our hearts and minds to God together as God's people, to be drawn to Him, to be called by Him, and to worship Him with delight and joy. Very warm welcome to all of you this evening, and it is our prayer that you would be ministered to and encouraged by the Lord Jesus Christ through His Spirit and in His Word. I'd like to invite you to stand with me now as we come into God's presence, and as God Himself addresses His people and calls them to worship Him with the words of Psalm 104. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we gather before you this evening, we do so by grace, through faith in Christ, because you have called us by your word that you might be glorified. And we pray this evening you would cause that to take place, that as we as we seek to look to you, that you would help us to look beyond these earthly things, beyond music, beyond preachers, and that by faith we would behold you in your glory, that we would see our Savior, and we would worship him, that we would delight in him. Lord, we are utterly dependent upon your Holy Spirit for any good tonight. And so we ask that you would work in our midst, that your power would be displayed, and your gospel would affect our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Come, brothers and sisters, let us worship God using those very words, Psalm 104, to the tune of Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing.
seated. We're going to open up the scriptures this evening, turn through to 1 Samuel as we continue reading our way through the story of the Bible. And we find ourselves in chapter 7 as we begin following along with the work of the Lord through the prophet Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 7. And just as a reminder, we've been filled with much uh, sadness in the book of Samuel so far as the people of God has, have forsaken the way of the Lord, chosen their own way, and thus been under the judgment and punishment of God. And towards the end of our last reading, the last verse, we saw that all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. It's a sign of sorrow and grief that they do not have the Lord's blessing upon them. And yet they, they, that's as far as they go. They lament for the Lord, but they don't know what to do. And so the Lord takes the initiative in our reading tonight. Chapter 7, verse 3. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they serve the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth -car. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered the territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. And he would return to Ramah, 
for this, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. I just finished rereading a book that I think it was the fifth time through, a book called Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, which is all about the story of a church that began to pray and, and, and saw just drastic change within themselves and within their community. And he makes a comment at one point in the book that a church will not begin to pray until it realizes how desperately it needs God. Prayer, he says, is born out of desperation. And we see that here, don't we? I mean, the people are gathered for worship. They're not gathered for war. They're gathered for worship. They're gathered for repentance. They're fasting. They've probably got no strength and energy. And it's in that moment that the hordes of the Philistines turn up. And I mean, what can they do? They've got nothing. They're helpless. They are truly desperate. And they cry out that cry in verse 8. Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Brothers and sisters, we, we must recognize our desperation at this time. Our nation is in a state of blackness. Churches around our nation are languishing. The gospel is rejected. Christ is hated. The people of God are famished. We are desperate. And even if we weren't desperate, we can't do anything because we can't save anyone. We have no power to achieve anything. And so we must learn to be desperate and to turn to the only thing we have, which is prayer. Prayer by ourselves and especially prayer with the saints. Crying out like the Israelites. Samuel. Don't stop praying. And when, when a church does that, the Lord acts. It's the story of history. There's a reason Jesus said, up till now you've asked for nothing. But I'm going to my Father, so ask, and it will be done for you. So let us come to him and let us ask. Let's pray.
Do we have any children that would like to come to the front this evening? <clears throat> All right, kids, who likes going to the beach? Yeah, beach is great. Eh? Okay, we're pretending we're going to go to the beach right now. All right, so what sort of things do you want to take to the beach? A bucket, yeah, a bucket and spade, that'd be good. What else? Just a bucket and spade? Clothes. Clothes, that's a good plan. Mm -hmm. uh, any clothes in particular? Clothes to go in ah, yes, togs we call them, yeah. togs. Yep, we need some swimming togs so we can swim. If you can't swim very well, you want, might want some of those floaty things that go around your arms so you don't, you know, sink, that would be bad. You might want some coffee. Well, you guys probably don't, but I definitely want some coffee. We're going to the beach. I'm going to need some coffee while I'm there. Uh, we might need some lunch, right? A little picnic lunch. What should we put in our picnic lunch? Sandwich. Sandwich? Yeah, it's a bit boring. What about a donut? Donuts are pretty good, aren't you? Doritos. Doritos? Nice. Some Doritos. Need some Doritos in there. Some jalapeno hot sauce to put on our Doritos with some cheese. Yeah, I'm getting into this. Maybe a soccer ball that we could kick around or, or a cricket set, some things to play with. Okay, so we've got all our stuff. We put it all in our car. What do we do next? Mm -hmm. Drive to the beach. That's right. Yep. And then remember that we forgot the surfboard. Oh, surfboard. Yeah, we need the surfboard too. So we stick that on the, and then we've got to drive to the beach. So we hop in the car, right? We load all our stuff in the car, and, and I, I'm, I'm the dad in this position, so I'm driving. You guys are too young to drive, remember? So I hop in the front. You guys are sitting in the back, happily singing, not fighting, because we don't fight in the car. You guys are happily sitting in the back, and I hop in the car, and I go to start the engine, and I turn the key, and nothing happens. And you guys are watching, and, and it doesn't turn on, but I just sort of turn the key, and, and I put it into gear, and I put my foot down, and I'm just like, doo -doo -doo. Do, 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 but the car's not moving anywhere. I'm going to do, 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 changing gear, or if it's automatic, it's boring, so you just put it in drive and start driving. Do, 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 and you guys are like, we're not going anywhere. We're not moving. We're not moving anywhere. Why aren't we moving? And eventually, one of you is like, uh, Dad, or Pastor Logan, or Mr. Hargort, or whatever it is you call me, Steve, hey, Steve, why aren't we moving? And I'm like, I'm doing everything. I'm putting my foot down, but we're not going anywhere. It's not moving. And one of you goes, have you turned the car on? I'm like, yep, nothing's happening here. Is it in gear? Yeah, I'm in gear. It's not working. And then I look, and there's a very important gauge. There's this very special gauge. It's often circular like this, and it's got an E on one side and an F on the other side. Do you know what that gauge is? That's right. It's the petrol gauge. Tells us if we've got petrol. And, and it's all the way at the bottom. It's empty. I can't drive my car without any petrol, can I? No. That's right. I need petrol to make the car. The, the, you can have all the right stuff on the car. You can have all your gear in the car. But it's not going to move if you don't have petrol. Petrol is like the life source of the car. Or you could call it the foundation of the car. You need lots of different Yes. Well, that wouldn't be helpful either, would it? But in this case, we've got a car without the petrol. Well, having a car without a petrol is a little bit like having a church without the Bible. If you have a church without the Bible, you'll be making lots of noise. You'll be doing lots of things. You'll look like you're doing church. You might even smell like you're doing church. 
from the outside, it looks very churchy, but it's missing one of the most important ingredients, which is the Word of God. And that's what we're going to be looking at tonight, that we need the Word of God in our lives, both as individuals, but especially as the church of God. And so Paul tells Titus to use the Word for the good of the church. However, sometimes we, we get a bit tired of it and we want fancier stuff. And so we're going to be thinking about what we do need in the church as, as we think about the Bible. Because even you guys need it. From the youngest to the oldest, they all need the Word of God in their life. Because otherwise they've got no petrol. So let's pray and ask God to teach us by His Word. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Word of God which you have given us to keep the church driving keep the church on track. And we ask, Lord, that, that you would feed us the Word of God, that we wouldn't become like a car with no petrol, aimlessly sitting in a driveway. But, Lord, we would have the Word bubbling up and over out of our hearts, that it might f move us and change us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Right, children and everyone else, we're going to stand and sing, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and then if you want a colouring sheet, you can go and get one after that. Let's stand and sing together.
Father in heaven, as we bring back to you our gifts and offerings, recognizing they're yours anyway, we ask that you would take them and bless them for the sake of the kingdom of God, uh, that Lord, widows and orphans and sojourners might be cared for, that the needs of the church might be met, that ministers and missionaries would be supported, and that the gospel would go to the ends of the earth. We ask that wherever this money goes and whatever it's used for, it would be used for the glory of God that his praises might be sung throughout the earth. Thank you for the generosity of your people, which enables people like me to preach your word. Thank you for their love 
for me and my family. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. We're opening up the Bible this evening to the little letter of Titus as we continue journeying our way through this little book. We find ourselves drawing to the end of chapter 2 and the end of a section. As we draw near to the end of a section, just so I can remind you of where we've been, as we walked through chapter 1, verse 1 to 4, we saw the foundations of the letter as Paul laid out his sort of core ministry goals and his values and what he strives after and the God that set him aside. We saw the qualifications for elders as, the, as Paul showed that the, the answer to the problems at Crete is God-ordained eldership. And then having seen some of the problems in the Jewish myths and the commandments of men that were abounding in the church at Crete, Paul set about instructing Titus what he was to teach for the sake of godliness in the church. And so we slowly marched our way through chapter 2, didn't we? And we looked at old people and young people and ministers and slaves and the way that they were to live before God. Then we unpacked the foundation from that in verse 11 through 14 last week, or whenever it was. It's all a bit of a blur at this point. And, and now we find ourselves at the end of that section in verse 15. And so what Paul's done is he's laid out the, the specific instruction that Titus is to teach the people of God, and now he's going to deliver an exhortation to Titus specifically, but in such a way that the congregation themselves would hear it and be challenged by it. And then as we move into chapter 3, Lord willing, next week, we will begin to move into a more generalized section. So here we are in chapter 2, verse 15, and we'll read from verse 11 just to give it a bit of a backdrop. This is God's word for you this evening. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word to us. And before we consider it, let's pray. Lord, as we've just sung, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We long for you to speak, O Lord. For we recognize that without your Holy Spirit illuminating your word, causing it to bear fruit, it will do us no good. We will hear it, but it will fall upon deaf ears. And we know, Lord, the problem is not in your word, 
but the problem is in our hearts. The problem is us. And so we pray, God, would you give us ears to hear tonight? Give us a heart to believe tonight and a will to do what your word says. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I wonder if when you saw the title for the sermon, the ministry of the word, if you thought to yourself, oh, we're going here again. Feels like we've done this before. Uh, in fact, if I remember rightly, this is the fifth sermon in Titus that we've spoke about preaching or the role of the minister. And I can understand the, I mean, it's exciting for me, right, because I'm a minister, but I can understand for the congregation, it's like, oh, okay, Logan, you know what you need to do. Uh, can you just tell us what we need to do? Because why do we need to hear about the minister again and the preaching of the word again? I feel like we've been here before. Let's move on. Like We could just skip over verse 15, right? Because Or just tag it on to the last sermon. Not a problem. Make a brief comment and move on. Why is it? Why is it that we do this? Or more importantly, why is it that Paul speaks about it so much? I mean, well, that's easy, Logan, because he's speaking to a minister. Of course he is. But you forget that I told you early on that the Apostle Paul isn't just writing to Titus, remember? It's a letter to Titus for the church. It's a public letter addressed to one individual, but for the sake of the whole church. So Titus received this. He didn't go, wow, I got a letter for Ty from Paul. Well, he probably did say that, but he went, well, I need to read this to the church. And the very next Sunday, he would have stood up among God's people and read out this, this letter in its, in its total. Maybe he would have preached through it. I don't know what he would have done. But it was intended for the church of God. So why is it that the Apostle Paul spends so much time talking about the preached word of God in verse 1 through 3? Why is it that he talks about the need for us to be sound in the doctrine and in the word? And then in chapter 2, talk about the need to teach the word of God. And talk about the way the minister needs to conduct himself later in the chapter. And then right here again, after all of that, he comes back again to reinforce again for Titus what he's to do. Well, the reason Paul does that is that this is the foundational bedrock for the church. As, as one man, Dick Lucas, put it, the church can only rise as high as its pulpit. Now, he doesn't mean how many stairs do you have up to your pulpit, like, you know, in those big churches where you've got to climb all the way to the top of the pulpit. What he means is your church will grow or shrink in depth, we're not talking size, we're thinking depth, spirituality, godliness, blessedness in the Lord. That will happen in direct correlation to the ministry of the word among God's people. That was the reason for Dick Lucas, why he gave himself wholeheartedly to the preaching of God's word. If, if prayer is like, is like the fuel that fills up the tank of the individual and the church, the word of God is like the foundation upon which everything is built. We need both. 
But we desperately need the word of God to be at the very center. And so Paul writes to Titus, and after giving him this lengthy section on really practical godliness, he, he now reinforces it with this very, very strong exhortation to Titus. It's very strong. It's actually hard in the English to stress the force with which he stresses it. The, the ESV translation doesn't really help. Uh, the, the semicolon's in the wrong place. Now, the way it would be translated, I guess, woodenly, would be these things speak, quite the words just speak, same we saw at the beginning of chapter 2 where teachers, it's the exact same word, I'm not sure why the translators give us teach back there and declare here, but speak, so these things speak, exhort, and rebuke with all authority, full stop, no one must disregard you or no one must despise you. It's very punchy. And it's intended to be so. He doesn't mince words to Titus. So Titus, do the work of the ministry. It's like he says to Timothy, preach the word in season, out of season. Fulfill the work of the ministry. Show yourself to be an approved workman of God, rightly handling the word of God. And so now this comes to us, to me. And I want you to see three things here. As we think about the, the ministry of the Word, I want us to think about uh, three simple concepts. We're going to think about the delivery of the Word, the delivery of the Word. Secondly, we're going to think about the authority of the Word. And then thirdly, we're going to think about the reception of the Word. So delivery, authority, and reception. So firstly, delivery. Paul says to him, these things. And it, now you might not think much of those two little words. These things. Well, what are these things? I mean, if someone says to you, you know, go and get these things for me. So like, well, what do you want me to get? My, my dad's chronic at this. He just removes all of his nouns in a sentence and puts that. So, you know, the thing, and that thing, and that thing, and that thing. And at some point, you lose track of what he is actually talking about anymore. So, well, what are the these things, you might ask yourself? Well, the these things, first and foremost, are not Titus's things. He doesn't say, Titus, speak some stuff. He doesn't say, speak Jewish myths. He doesn't say, speak the commands of men. He says, speak these things. What are these things? It's the word of God. Specifically in the context, it's everything from chapter 2, verse 2, through to verse 14. Both the foundation, the gospel, and also the practical instruction. Don't only preach the practical instruction. Don't only teach the foundation gospel, but do it all. Teach these things. I've given you this instruction for a purpose, Titus. Speak it. And so he gives him these things. That's important for us to remember because it's very easy for us to forget that. Not, not just as the minister, not just as a church, but as individuals. We can very quickly begin to think that these things are not enough. But, you know, we just, we just need something else. We need something 
It's, it's not that we don't want the word, but we want something a bit more. You know, it'd be great if you could jazz it up. You know, maybe have a drama next week. Or have a clown. That would be exciting. Or we could just, instead of having the word, we could just have someone share a, share a testimony or share a word of encouragement or prophecy. That would be pretty cool, right? No, we need these things. See, we're always tempted, and the devil loves to tempt us to become, to become like the Old Testament king who decided he knew what was best. I forget his name now. He's right after, at the same time, after Solomon at the same time of uh, Rehoboam. He, he comes along and he says to himself, you know what? It's really bad for me that the people go up to Israel, up to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. So what I'll do is I'll just make our own version here and I will just appoint my own priests. I mean, it's just going to be the same. We're just going to do it here and we'll just use calves, you know, because, well, we need something to worship and we'll make an altar and it'll be exactly the same as the altar at the temple and we'll worship Yahweh that way. So we're not going to use these things. We're going to use my things. And it brings judgment upon himself and the people of God. And we can be like that. Subtly beginning to think we need something other than the these things. But brothers and sisters, you need these things. And you need them spoken to you. Paul says, speak these things. These things speak. Now, there's all sorts of debate. Should it be translated speak or teach or declare, or preach. And the reality is, yes. It's, it's more than just preaching, but it's not less than preaching. It, it sort of covers every single bit of speaking that a minister does. You know, when, when, when I come and see you, or if I have a coffee with you, or after church, or when we're speaking together. The words that I am, I am to speak to you, the words that you need to hear from me, is not Logan's practical advice on what you should do about your marriage problem or Logan's tips on parenting. That's not what you need. You don't need Logan's encouragement when you're feeling depressed. What you desperately need is the Word of God. This is why I am totally against 98% of all counseling systems in New Zealand, including the Christian ones. And I'm actually saying 98% of the Christian ones. I know that sounds grim, but the reason I say that is because almost all of them, to put it in perspective, I know of one counselor I can wholeheartedly recommend without qualification. One. Now, granted, I don't know a million counselors, but still, there's only one. Why? Because the vast majority of, of them, when you go to them and say, I am depressed or I'm having suicidal thoughts, their solution for you is not the word of God. It is the, these things of man. I will help you with your problem. I don't want your help. Please save me from the self-help and clinical experts. Give me the word of God. Now, I'm not against doctors. I go to the doctor. 
I'm not against getting professional help when I need it. I've had surgeries. But I desperately need the word, and so do you. And so we, we, need, we need to be spoken to. We need to be taught the word of God. Why? Because how am I going to do the word? How am I going to keep the word? How am I going to function in godliness and obedience if I don't know it? I need to be taught in order to know what to do, right? We know this with our children. If you never teach your children table manners, they're going to be pigs at the table, right? It's not rocket science. If, if my son doesn't know, no, no embarrassing to my son, embarrassment to me, my son doesn't know how to tie a tie. Why? Because I never taught him. I'm lazy. I just tie the tie myself, loosen it and give it to him and he sticks it on. If we don't teach people how to do things, they're not going to know how to do it. And so Paul says, Titus, you've got a bunch of misfits on Crete. I mean, don't forget, these are the people that Paul says, they're liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. It's like, Titus, you're going to need to teach them some stuff. But there's a problem. Because all of the speaking, all of the teaching, all of the instructing by itself will run into an issue. And that is, for most of us at least, not for all Christians, there's plenty of Christians who don't get taught, but for us especially, we actually know what we need to do, right? Most of us, not all of us, some of you are new believers, but most of us have either grown up in the church or we've been a believer for a long time. We actually know what to do. We know we're meant to obey the Lord's day. We know we're not meant to steal. We know we're meant to read the scriptures. We know we need to pray. We know all this stuff. Some of us, like Paul says of Timothy, have nursed godliness from our mothers. What we need is exhortation. We need urging. We need encouraging. We need someone, as, as, as Calvin would put it, to Urge these things with vehemence upon us. That's a strong word, isn't it? Vehemence. Why? Because we're lazy. Well, let's be honest. How often do you find yourself reading a passage in the Scriptures and thinking to yourself, I don't do that. I should really do that. Next chapter. And then you just carry on reading. Very often, we are lazy and we are like the man James speaks of. You remember James? Chapter 2, I think it is. We, we go up to the mirror and we see our face and we turn around and we forget what our face looks like because we are hearers and we hear well. You guys are hungry. You hear really well. Ian Smith said that. And I know that. You hear really, really well. But are we doers of the word? And so we need ministers of the gospel, not just to come to us and say, don't have sex outside of marriage. But to say to us, don't do that because sin brings you to hell. Don't touch it with a barge pole. We need people to challenge us. This is why the writer to the Hebrews says, exhort one another, encourage one another, urge one another every day. Every day. Not, not just once a year, but every day. Why? Because we are stubborn and slow in our flesh, and we desperately need people to urge us. Do you know why the writer to the Hebrews says that? He says that you might not be hardened in your sin, because we are tempted, 
to get ourselves over to the flesh every single day. But, you know, there's another problem. Our ministers will do this. I will do it. You well know that. Ejima will do it. Jeff will do it. When Carlos preaches, he will do it. Everyone will do it. But there's a third thing, isn't there? And that's because one of the problems is often we hear it taught and sometimes we hear it urged and sometimes we ignore it and give ourselves over to sin in spite of it. And Paul says something which I think deep down most of us really don't like the sound of. He says, these things speak, these things exhort, these things rebuke. I wonder how many of you feel a little bit uncomfortable when I say that one of my jobs is to rebuke you. We don't like being rebuked, do we? I can, I can remember my, a, a man I know, I'll say that, a man I know who was abysmally failing the vows he made in his marriage. He wasn't, he wasn't like committing adultery. He was, just, he was failing to come to church. He was failing to bring his wife to church. And he had made vows to, to, to live in godliness and, and to love his wife, and he was failing to do that. And, and the minister, who was my minister as well, he went around, I heard about this years later, he went around to his house, he knocked on the door, and this person opened the door, and the minister sat down with him and said to him, you are failing your wife by failing to honor God in your marriage, and you have to change. He was summarily kicked out of the house and the door was slammed behind him, and the person still lives in complete rejection of the Word of God. But the minister was right. It doesn't always work. But when people give themselves over to sin, when you engage in sin, you need a minister, or someone at least, to come alongside you and rebuke you for your sin. Why? Because sin kills us. Sin leads to death. That's the way it works. And when we give ourselves to sin, we lead ourselves towards death and we destroy those around us. Think about the lives of, of the patriarchs. Abraham and Sarah, they deceive and lie to Egypt about their relationship. Oh, we're not married. We're just brother and sister. And then Isaac and Rebecca do the exact same thing. Oh, we're just brother and sister. Everything's fine. And then what does Jacob do? He just lies to everybody. And then what do Jacob's sons do? They deceive a whole city and butcher it. And you see the sin just spreading throughout. Because there was no one to rebuke them. It's a hard thing to do. I really mean that. It is really hard to sit down with a person and say to them, what you are doing is sin, it is wrong, and you must change. I've had to do it. It's not enjoyable, but it's necessary. Pray, pray that I and, 
and the elders and all those responsible for this work would have the courage to do it. And if it comes to you, let me challenge you, receive it. And we shouldn't be surprised, brothers and sisters, because Paul's only instructing us in things himself. He himself did. What did he do? He taught the church, right? But he didn't just teach them. He exhorts them everywhere. And we see him rebuking churches like Galatia. What's the matter with you people? You've been bewitched, he says. And it's not just them. Even Peter. Remember that incident where Peter's like eating bacon with the Gentiles and then the Jews turn up? Peter's like, oh, well, I'm a Jew too. And he stops hanging out with the Gentiles. And, and Paul tells us he rebuked Peter to his face in front of everybody. And then Paul writes to Timothy, who's like the weakest guy. That's the way he's, he's just described as this weak, meek, mild guy. Paul says to him, Timothy, rebuke them publicly that they might not sin. I mean, publicly? I'm not talking we're having a coffee at your house He's talking, bring them to the front of the church and rebuke them in front of everyone. And I, I, I mean, I just, I just, I'll be honest, I just don't even know what that looks like. I've never done that. I hope I never have to do that. I was, I was struck reading just this past week about a church in Axminster in England. 1678, I think it was. 1678, Puritan church. One of the guys in the church stole his neighbor's sheep. It's not good news, is it? He stole his neighbor's sheep. And so, so a few of the believers went up to him and said, you stole my sheep. And he said, no, I didn't. And he was confronted by multiple people and multiple witnesses with evidence. And they said to him, you stole my sheep. I want my sheep back. He said, no, nah, I didn't. He refused. He lied through and through. And so they, they summoned the entire town, different worlds, right? They, they summoned the entire town, not very big, and all the local churches, anyone that wanted to, want, wanted to come, and they all gathered together, and they sit him, like literally, just imagine a chair, right? He's just sitting right there. And the minister preaches at him in front of everybody on the, on the this evil sin of theft and lying. And he calls the man to repentance and he rebukes him publicly in front of everybody. And the man refused to repent. It's just mind boggling. I was like, what? He's like, literally, witnesses everywhere. And he's just like, no. And they excommunicate him and kick him out of the church and out of the town. Well, he's still living in the town, but he's cut off from the community of God. And as much as it, I feel awkward, we have to do that. Not that. We don't have people stealing our sheep. But, but people need to be called out on their sin and challenged and rebuked. But notice, notice the authority. So we've seen what he has to do, the, the delivery. That's the majority of the sermon. If you're thinking you're going to get two more full points like this, we might be here a while. No, the next one is the authority. You see, part of the problem is what happens when we start using the word as it's meant to be used. Not, not meek and mild preachers, Preaching to meek and mild congregations in the midst of a meek and mild world, which is on its way to hell. But the word of God forcefully delivered, logic on fire with passion and zeal to see the gospel advancing to people who are dying in their sin. When that begins to happen, one of the first things that comes out of people's mouths is, who do you think you are? 
That's what, that's what that guy I was speaking about earlier who got challenged about his marriage said. I, I spoke to him later on. He said, who does he think he is to walk in my house and tell me that I'm failing my wife? And Titus is going to get that. I mean, he's dealing with people way worse than that guy. He's dealing with people way worse than sheep stealers. He's dealing with lazy gluttons, right? He's got the Cretans. And they're going to turn around to them. They're going to say to him, Titus, who do you think you are to come in here and tell me and rebuke me and chastise me and chasten me for my lifestyle? If I want to sleep around with the temple prostitutes, that's my business. Get out. Titus is to say, who am I? I am an ambassador of Christ. Paul says, speak, exhort, rebuke with all authority. Now, it's very interesting because the word Paul uses for authority here is very unique in this sense. It's used all through the Bible, quite a few different places, but it's almost never used in this sense. It's the same word, if you have a look back at chapter 1, verse 3, where it says, uh, with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. It's the same word. He's taken that word, which is a word almost always tied to God, authoritatively commanding something, and turned it into this word here of authority. He's not saying, do it in an authoritarian manner, or do it with an air of authority, but do it as under the authority, or do it as by the command of God. Why? Because Titus represents, in this context right here, Paul, who represents Christ. The minister of God, as, as Paul would say, is God's minister, Christ's ambassador, the herald of the gospel. He is there representing God to his people. I don't stand here and I don't minister among you on my own authority. I have zero authority to tell you to do anything. If Logan turns up and says, Logan thinks you should do this, I mean, it might be great advice, but you can just say, I don't care. Get out of my house. But that's not the authority I come with because I come with the word of God. That's what Paul's saying to Titus. You come with the word of God under the authority of God, with the power of God to declare God's word. He comes as a prophet of the Old Testament saying, thus saith the Lord. Brothers and sisters, it is not optional whether you obey the word of God when it comes through a spokesperson of God. I know it's weird me saying that as the one who says it, but God is the one saying it. When God says what we're about to see, let no one disregard you. That is not an optional command. When God says to the older women, train the younger women to submit to their husbands, it's not optional because the man of God comes with the authority of Christ to declare his will to his people. Now we know that that is conditionally providing he speaks the word of God, right? Right? If I don't speak the word of God, you can ignore me and go home a happy camper. Well, actually, you probably won't be happy. You can stone me. But as long as I am speaking the word of God, it is with the full weight of the authority of Christ. 
And that offers you two very beautiful applications. Firstly, what comes to you comes with all the assurance of God himself. So when I stand up here and I say to you, everyone who repents and believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, he or she will be saved. You can believe that wholeheartedly and there's no doubt because Christ himself says it. When I stand up here and I say to you, there is no other name in heaven or in earth by which anyone can be saved other than Jesus Christ, you can believe that to the cows come home. And have complete assurance that you are saved if, if you put your faith in him. Not because of me, but because of the Christ who sent me to you. And that fills you with assurance, doesn't it? You can believe the promises of God that come from this pulpit. But there's another thing. And that is you must heed the word of God which comes to you week by week. Don't be like the man who looks in the mirror and forgets his face. But receive it and put it into practice. But there's one more thing, very briefly, the reception. The reception of the word. The ESV says, let no one disregard you. It's, it's a challenging thing to translate. It's a command. There's no one must, no one must despise you. Which seems like a weird thing to command, right? He commands Titus that no one must disregard him or despise him or look down upon him. I mean, how do I, to put myself in Titus's shoes, how do I ensure that no one disregards me? It's pretty challenging, right? I mean, I'll be honest. In, in seven years of ministry, there have been plenty of times when people have disregarded me, despised me, and looked down upon me. And that shouldn't shock anyone because it happens to every minister of the gospel. How do I stop someone doing that? Well, th this is where we understand there's two ways to understand this. Firstly, it's a command to Titus. This is one way of understanding it. It's a command to Titus to make sure he lives in such a way that no one would look down upon him. I think it's, it shouldn't be understood that way. The reason I say that is Paul has already told Titus how to live in verse 8 and 7. Now, I think it's actually directed to the congregation. This is, what, this is what Calvin picks up as well, because he says, this is delivered so that the congregation would, would look to the ministry that their minister is meant to fulfill and hear this command so that when the man of God comes with the word of God, they will not despise and reject the word of God. Why? Because the temptation is we don't like the message, so we what? Shoot the messenger. And if you don't think it happens, it's because you haven't been a minister very long. I cannot tell you how many times in the, it must be 12 years I've been preaching now, that I have had someone attack me personally because the message confronted them. The message challenged them. Not, not because the message was unbiblical, but because they didn't like what they heard. And so they attacked me personally. 
And as I say, you can ask almost any minister under the sun and they will tell you they've had the same thing. And so Paul says, Church of Crete, do not despise your minister. What does it mean not to despise your minister? We get a good example of this um, in Jesus, actually. It says in Hebrews 12 that Jesus despised the shame of the cross and did what? Pursued the joy that was coming. He despised the shame of the cross. He, he looked at the, the horror of the cross. He contemplated the, the cross and all of its terror. And he said, I'm going to despise that thing. Why? Because the joy of heaven is far more glorious than that. Okay? So picture that type of thinking. So this, this looking down on and considering something to be completely unworthy even caring about. Paul says, don't have that mindset of your minister. What would be the opposite? Well, it would be what Paul says to Timothy. Let the elders among you be treated with honor. And he who labors in teaching and preaching is worthy of double honor. And there's something really beautiful in this. Because what, what the minister seeks to constantly do well, let, let, me, let me change it around the other way. What the congregation ought to consistently seek to do, and this goes against everything it means to be Kiwis in our tall poppy syndrome mindset, is to grab the minister and to lift him up and honor him. And I know for every Kiwi that seems insane. And we're going to find every reason under the sun why we shouldn't do that because he's going to become egotistical and proud and all these other things. And we like cutting off the heads of everybody around us so everyone's flat. We hate hierarchy. And so he Lift them up and honor them. Hold them with respect and honor. Do you know what the minister's going to do? He's going to get off the pedestal. Why? Because he knows he's not worthy of any honor. Because everything that's been given to him, everything he's done, everything he's used, has been given to him by the grace of God. And you know you have a problem when one or two things happens. The minister just constantly keeps going up until his head's the size of an air balloon. And he's got a photo up on a wall with an FPOS machine down under it. Or, when the minister is so low down here that he's basically under the feet of the people of God. And I have spoken to ministers who have gone through that, who have been utterly crushed by a congregation who have treated him like, like nothing better than a slave to do his bidding. Oh, yes, the minister needs to get off that pedestal really, really fast. But Paul says the minister is worthy of his wages. The minister is worthy to be honored and lifted up. And you have full, well, I invite you, I fully give you my permission that if I'm on the pedestal too long, throw a rock at me. 
because as a minister, we live to serve. Yes, it's just like a husband and wife, right? The wife seeks to respect and honor and love her husband and lift him up. And what does he do? He gets down and serves. Gets down and washes the feet of his bride. Because after all, isn't that exactly what Jesus Christ did? We saw him this morning, didn't we? High and lifted up. On the mount. Exalted in glory and splendor. And Peter's wanting to celebrate. This is brilliant. Let's make some tents. This is going to be great. Maybe we're going to make some money off this. Not just Jesus, but two prophets as well. He's a real cash cow. What does Jesus do? He walks down off the mountain. And he goes to Golgotha. And he lays down his life and he dies. And he serves his people and he washes people and he loves his people. Uh, May God grant our ministers to do the same. And may God grant our congregation, us all, to love to hear the word as you do. To put it into practice when we're exhorted. And Lord willing, never to need to be rebuked. But if we are, to embrace it and be corrected by it. Like little children. It's striking, isn't it? You come to your child. And your parents, you know this. You go to your children. And you tell them what they need to do. And you tell them what they need to do. And you tell them what they need to do. And they still don't do it. So you exhort them to do it. And then what do they do? The opposite. So what do you do? You chasten them. And what do they do? They run into your arms. Hopefully. And you embrace them and you tell them, I love you. Don't do it again. Ah, may it be so among us. That God might be glorified in the ministry of the word in this place. As it has been for 20 plus years. May it be so until Christ comes back. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, I acknowledge my weakness in the word, my lack of understanding. Acknowledge at times I have misunderstood and misapplied. At times I have not rebuked when I should have. At times I've rebuked when I shouldn't have. At times I have exhorted when I needed to encourage. At times I have failed to speak when I should have. So I pray for all of the ministers of the word, not just here but around this nation and around the world, that you would help us to be faithful. Help us to teach. Help us to speak. Help us to encourage, exhort, urge. Help us to rebuke, chasten, chastise. That the people of God might be presented blameless to our God. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to do that with authority. 
the authority that comes from God himself, from Christ, the minister of the church. And we pray, Lord, that you'd help us as a people not to disregard ministers, not to despise them, even when we don't like them, even when they're annoying. And we pray that you'd help help this church to be a place of the word. We thank you for those that have gone before us. We think of, of Ross Thompson. We think of Peter Warner. Peter Boyd. Peter Reynolds. Now myself and Jeff. Nijima. And Carlo. And all those who will stand up in this place and preach. Lord, may the, the banner of the word be high and lifted up in this place that all might come and see Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let us stand and sing in response to God's word with the words of the song, Lord, speak to me that I might speak. Let's stand and sing, and then I'll ask you to remain standing for the Lord's blessing.
Lift up your hearts, brothers and sisters, receive the word of God in the way of his blessing to you this evening as you go forth to another week. The Lord Jesus Christ himself, our God and our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope, through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. May the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. May the Lord be with you all. Indeed, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. To him who sits upon the throne. Where justice and mercy 